Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federal Society's webinar call. Today, August 11th, 2022, we discuss religious liberty at the Supreme Court. My name is Kayla Kleist, and I'm Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call, as the Federal Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. Today, we are fortunate to have with us as our moderator, Professor William Saunders, a lawyer at the Catholic University of America, who is co-director of the Center for Religious Liberty at the Columbus School of Law and a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology. I'll leave it to him to introduce our other speaker. Throughout this panel, if you have any questions, please submit them through the question and answer feature at the bottom of your webinar so that our speakers will have access to them when we get to that portion of the webinar. With that, thank you for being with us today. Professor Saunders, the floor is yours. Uh, welcome, everyone. Glad to have you with us. I'm looking forward to this discussion uh, with Mark Rienzi. He's a graduate of the Harvard Law School and is a uh, full professor at Catholic University Columbus School of Law. He um, is also the president of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, and this podcast today is all about religious liberty, and uh, the Beckett Fund has been involved as amicus in these various cases. So uh, Professor Rienzi has a close-up knowledge of the cases. Um, as uh, was mentioned, Mark is uh, co-director of the Center for Religious Liberty. So uh, let's get started by, I've just mentioned the cases we're going to discuss today. You're free in question and answers to ask about another case, if there's one that interests you. The, the ones that we think we should be most relevant today are, uh, are four cases, and the, um, they kind of in my opinion, kind of build like a, a symphony orchestra concert builds and builds really to a crescendo, which is the Bremerton v. Kennedy case, which is the last case of the term. But of the four cases we're going to discuss, they start with Ramirez, a Ramirez v. Collier, which was decided in March uh, of this year, followed by Shirtliff v. City of Boston, which was decided in May. And then, uh, actually, I just mentioned briefly, Ramirez was eight to one uh, with Roberts writing the opinion. Shirtliff was nine to zero, although there was uh, three of the justices, Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch, concurred in the judgment. But it was 9-0 in favor of uh, religious liberty in that case. Um, then there was Carson uh, v. Macon in, on June 21st, and it had to do with uh, a school district and whether a, school, a religious uh, school in a school district could receive funding from the state under a special state program for districts that did not have public schools. It was a six to three decision with Chief Justice Roberts writing for the six in the majority. And the dissenters were, uh, those who are traditionally called the liberals on the court, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. That was June the 21st. And then, as I mentioned, the kind of crescendo of Kennedy v. Bremerton on June the 27th. For, 
for the lawyers listening and Supreme Court uh, view uh, watchers, you'll know that the Supreme Court usually saves its biggest, uh, in some ways, biggest or most controversial or most, I suppose, most controversial is the best way to put it. Those cases until the very end of the term. And you will know that one of those cases was, was Dobbs and there were other cases. But one of them was Kennedy v. Bremerton who decided on June the 27th. Um, it had to do with um, a coach who was praying on the sidelines after a game and whether that uh, violated the establishment call, clause or was permitted under free exercise. And it um, also uh, impacted this case, which all lawyers will remember, which is the lemon standard uh, on religion. And it was a six to three opinion with Roberts again writing for the majority and the three, quote, liberals in dissent. So that's just a kind of quick overview. Uh, Ramirez, Shurtleff, Carson B. Macon, and then Kennedy v. Bremerton. And I, I would just say myself, as, as I handed over to Mark, that I think it was a great term for advancing religious liberty. But I turn it over to Mark to go into these cases in more detail. And then uh, we're going to open it up for questions for you guys in about 20, uh, 20 25 minutes. So we're happy to answer anything you, you want to ask. Mark? Great. Happy to do it, Bill, and uh, happy to be here to talk about these cases. So um, let me start with the first one you mentioned, Ramirez versus Collier. Um, this is a case that arose originally on the Supreme Court's emergency docket. Um, it's a death penalty case, and it's about a prisoner who was going to be put to death in Texas, um, but who asked to have uh, prayer. He asked to have the accompaniment of his clergy to pray over him um, and lay hands on him at the time of execution. And the question in the case is, well, um, Texas was refusing to allow that. And does Ramirez uh, have a religious liberty right? Uh, the particular law they used was RELUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. Does he have a right under that act or under the free exercise clause to have the accompaniment of clergy at the time of his execution? Um, it's actually an issue that has bubbled up on the court's emergency docket a handful of times over the past three or four years. Um, but this time, the court did something uh, relatively new, which is instead of deciding the issue on the emergency docket, um, it did what, I, what I've been calling its rocket docket move of it took the case and it gave the guy a quick stay, but it said, let's have a really fast merits process. So they set his brief due date for some you know, very, very near term, like you know, five or 10 days after the cert grant. And they set the oral argument up for a couple of weeks later than that. So they really accelerated the case. Um, and I think the reason they did that is that they wanted to, to dig into it um, and, to, and to get into the substance of it with a little bit more meat and time than they would on the emergency path. So they did that. Um, and in the end, the court issues a really strong um, eight to one opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts saying that, look, the, the condemned prisoner does have a religious liberty right to the presence of his pastor and to pray audible prayer and laying on hands of his pastor at the time of his death, unless unless the government can satisfy its test under the sta standard that Congress set forth for it, which is the government's got to prove there's a compelling interest and denying the religious exercise is the 
uh, least restrictive means of achieving that interest. And what the court did uh, was it, it looked at history and it said, look, we've got a long history of uh, clergy essentially accompanying people right up to the moment of death, whether it's at the gallows um, or just for the electric chair or before firing squads. There's a long, rich history of that. Um, and lots of other prison systems across the country do allow this type of prayer with your pastor just before getting executed. And so that Texas had to come forward with some evidence or some reason to believe that it would be dangerous or problematic to have this happen and that Texas hadn't come forward with anything, right? And so ultimately it's a strong decision for religious liberty. The principle it lays out is one that I think will be useful in many areas, you know, be useful in the prison context, useful in many other areas too, when the government's supposed to pass strict scrutiny and all of these other governments around them have found a way to allow a religious exercise and still um, still achieve their interests. Obviously, prisons have very important interests in safety. Um, that's an important interest. But all the other prison systems in the country, including the feds, seem to be able to both allow prayer for the condemned and protect safety. And given that Texas did not have strong arguments or evidence for why that couldn't be done in Texas, the court said, you failed the test. Um, you can't execute the guy unless you allow him to have the prayer. So that was Ramirez versus Collier. Again, that was one that, you know, nobody knew about at this time last summer, well, maybe around this time we started to, no one knew in, in the preceding June that case was gonna get decided last year. It really came up on the emergency docket, got moved over to the merits docket, docket and decided relatively quickly. Um, let me shift from that death penalty case to, to the three other cases, which I think actually um, fit together pretty well. Um, Shirtliff v. City of Boston, which is the case about the flagpole in Boston, the city of Boston allowed allows private groups to run their own private flags up one of the flagpoles on City Hall Plaza. Um, and they'd allowed, um, I think 270 something people, you, issue, you submit the application, the city says yes. Submit the application, the city says yes. Everybody's been able to fly their flag up there. City allowed everybody to do it. The one thing that made them say, no, we can't, was somebody said, well, I want to fly a Christian flag with a Christian cross on it. And then the city said, well, maybe that's too much of a church and state thing because it looks like we're endorsing religion. So in Boston, it was any flag you want, essentially, except a religious flag with the government thinking we got to keep religion out. Um, in Carson v. Macon, that was a case that arose from Maine about a Maine government program that said, look, there's some places in Maine that are quite rural and where it doesn't make sense for us to build a K through eight or sometimes a high school. Um, and you know where it doesn't make sense for us to build a high school, we're willing to essentially give the parents the money we'd otherwise would have spent to say, here, parent, you can put your kid in some school someplace and we'll pay for it. And that program was open to a wide variety of schools in Maine a wide variety of schools outside of Maine. People had been able to send their kids to like boarding, you know, rich boarding schools in New England. Um, they'd been able to send their kids to boarding schools in California and Paris. So Maine was not terribly picky about where you took this money. But the one rule Maine really insisted on was you couldn't take it to a place that actually practiced religion, right? So it was, Boston was kind of any flag, but a religious flag. Carson was kind of any school, but a religious school. And then the last one of the trio was Kennedy versus Bremerton, which is about the coach, Coach Kennedy, the football coach, um, who got fired for wanting to kneel and say a short prayer by himself at the 50 yard line at the end of a football game. 
Um, and again, the evidence in that case was that the, the school district would have been fine with him talking to a buddy or talking to his friend or calling his wife or making a restaurant reservation. He really could have done whatever he wanted on the 50 yard line, but not pray. Um, so I think those three cases together, Shirtliff, Carson and Kennedy, all kind of fit this mold of the governments that have this view that says you can do whatever you want there, just don't do religion, right? Just keep religion out. Um, that view is one that I don't think the government's like made up, right? The government's got there really because of something the Supreme Court made up, which is the lemon test, right? The lemon test comes from a case, Lemon versus Kurtzman uh, from the early 70s, may have been the late 60s, late 60s or early 70s. Um, where the court was looking at a school funding program in Rhode Island, and the court said, well, you know, we can't quite figure out what establishment means, so we'll just look at our own cases, and from our own cases, we'll kind of discern what we think the rules are. And they came up with this, you know, pretty notoriously bad three-part test of will figure out what's the purpose and what's the effect and is there entanglement. And the court really made no effort to anchor that in the constitution or in the constitutional understanding of what an establishment was when, when the first amendment prohibited that. Um, and the result of that really was, has been generations of lower courts and generations of governments and government officials that have internalized the view that the best thing to do is just keep religion out, right? It's this separation of church and state to the point of exclusion of religion or worse treatment of religion, whether it's for your employees or, people in a government program or people who want to do something on City Hall Plaza. Um, all three of these cases, I really do think the government actions were driven by having internalized this bad, lemon-driven view of the Establishment Clause. Um, as my colleague Eric Rosbach at the Beckett Fund has spelled out in a, in a Law Review article from seven or eight years ago, um, around the time of Town of Greece, the court really took uh, an important turn toward history in its Establishment Clause, right? So, Lemon was the court saying, gosh, we can't tell what the history is. We don't really know what that word establishment means. So we'll make it up and we'll invent a test. Um, and from town of Greece on, the court has actually done a relatively consistent job of saying, well, we have to be careful to pay attention to the history of the establishment clause. And what did the people who, who wrote and agreed to the establishment clause actually understand an establishment to be? Um, Michael McConnell has an excellent law review article from about 20 years ago, spelling out what the hallmarks of an establishment were to the founding generation. Because of course, people didn't just use that term, you know, as a, as a stand-in for no too much religion, right? Like an establishment of religion was an actual thing. And these people had lived with that actual thing. They knew what it was. And what Professor McConnell does an excellent job of is marshalling the history and saying, here are the basic attributes of and establishment of religion as it would have been understood by the people who agreed to put that limitation, not some other limitation, that limitation into the constitution. Okay, how does that play out over these three cases? Well, in Shirtliff, um, there's, there's what I thought was this pretty cool moment during the argument where Justice Kavanaugh leans forward to the attorneys from Boston and says, look, isn't the problem here just that governments haven't gotten the message that the establishment clause is not supposed to be used to be treating religion worse right? The religious people get to participate on equal terms, just like everybody else does. And of course, Shirtliff ends up coming out nine, nothing. Um, obviously it's not, you know, they didn't all have to get on one opinion, but in, in the, in concept and in result, all nine justices agreed Boston was wrong. You can't have a program that lets everybody fly a flag and then say, but not the religious person any more than you could let 
anybody who wants to walk down Main Street have a parade, but not the Klan or any, anyone can have a, a meeting on on the National Mall, but not the Republicans, or not the Democrats. You just can't do that. Right. If you're going to say your flagpole is a public forum, you got to let everyone participate. And this old bad understanding of lemon doesn't let you say, oh, keep the religious people out from where everyone else is free to go. Um, importantly, in Shirtlift, Justice Gorsuch wrote a concurrence, which ends up getting picked up in the majority opinion in Kennedy at the end of the term. But in Gorsuch's concurrence, he taps into that Michael McConnell law review article about the hallmarks of an establishment. And he says, this is how we should go about figuring out what's an establishment. We should actually look at historically what did people understand an establishment to be, because that's what they were agreeing to. They didn't agree to a free roaming judges will figure out what's too much religion test. They agreed to a no establishments. Um, and that actually had meaning to them. And Justice Gorsuch spells that out some in his Shirtliff concurrence. Uh, OK, so Shirtliff ends up being non-controversial relatively at the court nine nothing. The next one on the list, um, Carson versus Macon, is the school's case from Maine. Um, and that one is, ends up being a 6-3 decision that if Maine is going to fund all of these other schools and let parents pick all of these other schools, it also has to allow the religious schools to participate, too. In other words, Maine's not allowed to have a program that says the one kind of school you can't have here is a religious one. Right. If parents get to send their kids to if they want a rich boarding school in France or a private secular school down the road or something in California, if Maine says yes, yes, yes to all those things, then it's not allowed to have a special anti-religion rule. In some ways, Carson is the culmination of a line of cases um, that dates back over the past uh, four to five years with uh, Trinity Lutheran versus Comer. That was the uh, ADF case about the playground in uh, in Missouri, where they were allowed to resurface playgrounds with scrap tires and any nonprofit could get the grant to do it except a religious one. And the court said no. Uh, so Trinity Lutheran was the beginning, I think, of this this trilogy of cases. Espinoza from last term, which was the case about the the tax credit or the voucher program in Montana that was excluding religious schools and then Carson this year. Um, at the end of that, you actually have a pretty strong trio of cases saying that where the government has a benefit program that is generally open to the public, it is not allowed to have an exclude religion rule, which is what each of these programs had. Um, Chief Justice Roberts, again, takes the pen to write this opinion. Um, it's, it's a very strong opinion. It's, uh, it strongly endorses the idea that religious groups get to participate in these kinds of programs. Um, the chief also makes an interesting move in the course of the opinion tapping into the church autonomy line of cases, um, Hosanna Tabor and Our Lady of Guadalupe to, to Beckett Fund cases that um, built out the, the control and the power that schools ought to have over how the faith gets taught at their schools. Um, and what the chief does in this in Carson is he emphasizes that the state doesn't get to micromanage how the religious group um, inculcates values and spreads its religion in, in the in the classroom and in the school. And I think that is likely to be important going forward um, because I think it's a pretty strong signal from six justices that the governments aren't going to then be able to turn around and say, okay, well, since you took my money, you've given up all your rights to be religious. I, I, don't, I don't think the court's gonna let that happen. So I think Carson is a, a good strong win for religious liberty. And that was case, I should say, Shirtlift was a Liberty Council case and Carson was First Liberty and um, uh, Institute for Justice I, IJ argued that case. Um, so the, the third in the trio um, is the um, the Kent, Coach Kennedy versus Bremerton case. That's another First Liberty case 
uh, argued by Paul Clement, I believe argued when he was still at Kirkland, but it may be the first Supreme Court win of the newly formed Clement and Murphy firm um, after Kirkland apparently got tired of winning so much with Paul Clement and Aaron Murphy on their team. Um, so uh, Kennedy versus Bremerton, a 6-3 win um, for the coach. Really, uh, really great opinion by Justice Gorsuch for the court. Um, opinion does a number of things. One, it says, look, it violates the First Amendment to punish the school employee for exercising religion. You can't just say to a public school employee, well, you work here, so you're not allowed to say that kind of stuff, right? Like there are some limits and they're not allowed to just forbid him from acting religious. And the court says any more than you could forbid um, you know, a, a, a Jewish teacher from wearing a yarmulke, uh, a Muslim teacher from turning and facing Mecca to pray five times a day and so forth. Uh, these employees still have rights and the government is still discriminating based on content and viewpoint and religion when it punishes and fires the guy for his prayer. Um, but the court in Kennedy went one step further, one very important step further and said, and just to be clear, that old test we had from Lemon is a bad test and shouldn't be applied anymore. Um, and I think that was really an important thing for the court to do. We had been asking, we had Beckett had been asking the court for many years to do this because happened with, with the lemon test is the lemon test came out and it became clear. Uh, it didn't take much time for it to become clear that it was very manipulable test. Judges could kind of use the test to come up with whatever answer they wanted. The, the, the prongs of the test were pretty open-ended. Um, and so it was, it was a terrible constitutional test and everybody knew it. And the Supreme Court over the last 20 years had taken to not using it very much. So establishment clause cases would get to the court and then they would just not use the lemon test. But of course, the lower courts still considered themselves bound because the court had not overruled lemon, hadn't said to get rid of it. And so the lower courts and governments were still using this bad test that I think the Supreme Court had signaled wasn't good anymore, but they hadn't you know, really sounded the death knell. Well, in the Coach Kennedy case, they say that test is over and done with. Um, and instead, you really need to look to history. And just to kind of wrap this up, um, they the court then uh, taps into Justice Gorsuch's concurrence in Shirtlift and says, well, how are we going to figure out what's an establishment? Well, we're going to look to the hallmarks of an establishment. Um, and I think they are signaling that they're going to tap into that Michael McConnell way of thinking about what an establishment is, which which I certainly think is is the right path for the court to take. Um, one other point about Justice Gorsuch's uh, excellent opinion in the Kennedy case, um, he points out that the critics of, of, of the opinion and the folks who wanted to say the coach shouldn't be allowed to pray within sight of anybody um, were acting like observing somebody exercise a religion that is not your religion is a particularly dangerous or troubling thing to do. And Justice Gorsuch says it's actually the exact opposite, right? Letting the government punish that is the dangerous and troubling thing to do. Having a kid see that um, his teacher might have a different set of religious beliefs than he have he has, and that the teacher is actually allowed to freely do that um, and can't be punished for it, um, is actually sort of a quintessentially American, this is how you live in a country with people who have deep but different beliefs about things is they're allowed to express them and the government doesn't come and clobber them. The government doesn't force them to be silent. Um, you know, sure, the government can't make you do it, um, but that doesn't mean the government's empowered to fire Coach Kennedy for it. So by the end, I think those three cases are really the court's effort to tell lower courts and governments to get out of that old lemon way of thinking about things, to stop 
treating religion as if it were asbestos or something else that just needs to be you know, kind of cabined and excluded, um, and instead bring the Establishment Clause back to what it's supposed to mean, which is there is a thing called an establishment that really is what the government's not permitted to do, and they're not permitted to do the things that that are the hallmarks of establishment, like forcing, like, you know, writing prayers and forcing people to say them and so forth. Um, but otherwise, the Establishment Clause shouldn't be used to exclude religion. Let me stop there. That's my, my basic take on the cases from the term, and I'm happy to um, hear your thoughts, Bill, and or move to questions whenever you like. Well, just a couple of things. Um, I mean, it's interesting uh, in all these cases, or maybe one of the themes through these four cases is the kind of uh, attention to history, um, which is uh, part of an originalist uh, approach. I mean, it's not irrelevant to other approaches, but it's part of an originalist approach. Um, do you think this is a workable standard for uh, religious liberty cases? Uh, and, I mean, broadly, both establishment and exercise. Yeah, I think it's clear that the court is is. I mean, and, and it's not it's not just in um, in these cases. It's as you say across a, a range of cases. But I think the court is interested in the history, right? The court is interested in figuring out what did an establishment mean, right? And so, yeah, I think the court cares about the history. The court, again, like you know, from town of Greece on. The court really started leaning on history a lot in the Establishment Clause cases and saying this will help us understand what an establishment of religion really was. Um, so, yeah, I think it's I think it's something we're going to see in a range of religious liberty cases. And it's something the court's been doing for a while. But I think some of the lower courts and governments hadn't gotten the message, which is why the court was trying to send the message uh, strongly here. You know, another thing that I found curious anyway, when I read the, the uh, Bremerton case, was just the way that the lemon test was talked about, uh, which is that lemon has been dead and for quite some time, and we're just reminding you of the fact. I mean, that's my that's the way I would put it. That's not the way they put it. But why not just say? I mean, obviously, it was unclear to federal courts at all uh, at appellate and district court level the lemon was gone because they kept deciding, as you said, cases relying on lemon. Why not just say we overrule lemon? I mean, I, I realize yeah. that's in effect what they did, but why not just say that? So I don't know. I can't, I can't read their minds. I, I can hazard a guess. One guess is that it maybe it seems easier to just say, yeah, look, if you look at the past, we've already moved past that one then to announce we hereby today overrule it and then go back and apply all of the stare decisis factors that everybody was fighting over in, um, in, uh, in Dobbs and the other cases. Right. So like it could have just been uh, in a, a situation where it, the path was easier to just acknowledge really what I, I do think in practice they had already done. They had already stopped using, um, stopped using lemon for quite a while. So I, I assume that, that may be it, but I, I of course, don't I, do, I don't actually know. Um, I'd have been happy. They certainly could have written the opinion that went through the factors and explained why Lemon was was terrible as opposed to just observing that they have uh, they've got rid of it. Yeah, I mean, you had a majority for that statement. So there's no question. Lemon yeah. is gone. Um, the only other thing I, I would like to ask you before we open up for questions is um, I'm in, involved in uh, various meetings of various 
uh, groups of various perspectives here in Washington, D.C. on religious liberty. And there was a lot of apprehension about the uh, Kennedy v. v. Bremerton decision among, again, loosely what you might call left or center left or groups. Um, and um, it doesn't seem to me that now that that opinion is out, it's uh, anything to be very much afraid of. It doesn't uh, permit coercion of people or anything like that. I mean, what do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, there was a lot of fear of the uh, among the liberal left about this case, but I don't think it's a decision to be feared. Yeah, I think the court went out of its way to say that it, it's not endorsing coercion. I mean, look, if if anybody is opposed to coercion, the main coercion that was going on in that case is the man who lost his job. Right. Like the government came and fired a guy because he wouldn't do what they wanted to because he was exercising, exercising his religion when they didn't want him to. Um, so it's a little bit rich to, to read the opinion and say, oh, it should have come out the other way because I'm concerned about coercion. Um, it's true um, that. The government, you know, ought to ought to, you know, make sure no one gets forced to say a prayer they don't want to say. Like that's that's certainly true. But the court made clear that it wasn't it wasn't endorsing that. So no, I, I don't think um, I don't think we're headed down a path where that's uh, where that's a big problem. And again, I mean, to me, just the most obvious, blatant, strong arm coercion you could imagine is the government firing someone for his job because he said a prayer. Um, that's the real coercion that's going on in the case. Yeah, and, and court stopped that one. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, we can start taking questions. I, I'll. Uh, yeah, I'll I, I've got the Q and A thing open, so I'm happy to just kind of plug through. Well, the the, the one I'd like to, you to answer first, and then you can take any of them. Is the the second one, but uh, from Jeffrey Wood. Sure. Because a lot of people will be interested. Is Employment Division B Smith still intact? Yeah. Short answer is it's at least as intact as it was before these cases. So it's intact. The court has not overruled it. Um, you know, from the Fulton case um, a, a term ago that there are at least five or six justices who are certainly open to overruling it. Um, but they, I think they're they're looking for the right case. And ultimately, I don't think any of these cases required them to overrule it. And again, going back to my my hypothesizing about maybe why they didn't do a full dress overrule of lemon here. Um, you know, I think they, they may be looking for the right time. They've obviously signaled an openness to do it, but they didn't overrule They didn't overrule employment division versus Smith here. I suspect they are, they'd say, I, they may have even said this. I don't think anybody asked them to overrule employment diversion division versus Smith in this case, because whatever you think of employment division versus Smith, and I think it's quite wrong, uh, but whatever you think of it, even Smith says if something is punished simply because it is religious, that that violates the free exercise clause. So there's many, many things I think that are wrong with the Smith regime. I think it's a bad way to do constitutional law. Um, but even under Smith, uh, Coach Kennedy should win. So they left it intact, I think, because they didn't need to go get it. But there's still I think it's still clear there is an interest and a willingness to consider getting past Smith in a case where Smith really causes the trouble. So, Mark, why don't you take the next one? Yeah, why don't I, let me just um, run through the questions in the order they're asked. Um, so Justin, Justin Janke asked a question about um, the fact that they applied unoriginalist pre precedents. I, I assume that's talking about Smith and maybe some of the speech precedents, and they still use means and scrutiny. Um, I, 
I don't read a whole lot into that. I think that's essentially, again, the court saying, well, with the law as it stands in this area, we can get to the right result. So, you know, I think they probably weren't eager to go out and remake uh, religious exercise law there because under any version of the law, Coach Kennedy ought to win. Uh, that's at least how I would chalk that one up. Um, Employment Division versus Smith, we hit. Um, Paul, Paul Schmidt's got a question about, oh, about Carson. Um, yeah, so some states have announced they're going to tighten non-discrimination requirements in response to Carson. Um, I, I think schools will have very strong arguments in response to that if the government says, well, now that you are taking my funds, you don't get to insist, for example, on having a religion teacher who fits your religion or hiring according to your faith. I do not think the court was saying to the governments, hey, governments, you can let the religious groups in, but you can make the price of participation that you shed your religious identity or you violate your religious beliefs. So I, I, I ha I've read some of those articles, too, uh, but I think those governments are way out over their skis and, and I think they are quite likely to lose. Um, and and the, the question also asked, will religious schools have to prove religious targeting or gerrymandering? Um, I don't think they will or they should, but I think they can. I think it actually be pretty easy to do it. Um, all of these governments or many of these governments like, came right out and announced and said basically, okay, fine. If I have to have the religious schools in here, I'm at least going to come up with something that the bad religious schools can't do, like let me control their hiring. Um, so I actually don't think it'd be all that difficult to show that those things are a version of targeting if they weren't insisting on them five minutes before Carson, which I think most of them were not. And um, our, in many of these cases, uh, they let in everybody but the religious schools. So I, it seems to me you've got just about de facto. Yeah, they're right. And they're, and they're changing the rules saying, OK, fine, if the religious people are coming, then I've got a new rule for them. Seems like targeting to me. Um, the lone dissenter in Ramirez, to answer the next question, was Justice Thomas. And Justice Thomas, I, I think it's fair to say, basically, um, you know, I, don't, I don't think he was sure the prisoner was sincere. I think he felt like it was death penalty gamesmanship, which, of course, the court deals with quite a bit um, with you know people throwing everything they can to try to avoid getting executed. Um, that's that's pretty understandable impulse from both uh, client and lawyer in that context. I think Justice Thomas just didn't believe it was a, a sincere claim and thought it was gamesmanship. And, and Justice Thomas wrote in really heartfelt terms about the person who, who had been murdered. And he pointed out, well, that person didn't get the benefit of presence of clergy. He just got murdered out on the street, um, which, you know, I, I can certainly understand the uh, the sympathies there. I mean, um, when you say when you say, Mark, also, you said this was, uh, you know, the rocket docket. I mean, the court really was kind of sensitive in a way to those concerns. Uh, the majority didn't come out the way Thomas did, but they expedited it. They didn't let it drag. I mean, right when it got to the court, they moved it forward because they wanted to resolve the issue. Yeah, I think that's right. I think they moved it forward because it was a recur recurring issue on the emergency docket and they addressed it a few times. And I think in part, they wanted to come up with a clear rule so that it would get resolved in the lower courts and not, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, the day of an execution, which is how it had been coming up. Um, just going to take a moment to read the next question, which um, is a little bit longer. I want to make sure I, I, I do it right.
So the question is, you know, what what might we expect of the court if the court does overrule Smith and replace it with strict scrutiny? Will it be kind of as strict, strict, strict scrutiny as we've seen under RELUPA and RIFRA? Um, and if so, would that carry, how would that carry over to free X claim, uh, free X claims and limited public forum type claims? Um, I think the truth is we frankly don't know. Um, I will say that the original Smith decision justified itself in large part by saying, boy, if we had real strict scrutiny for religion claims, that would be anarchy. That would, the world would go crazy. We wouldn't be able to have it. Um, and I think RIFRA and RELUPA show you that actually, you know what, like we can have it. We can apply it strictly. It's not anarchy. It's fine. Um, you know, half the states in the country or so, maybe a little bit more, have state RIFRAs. Right. And, and none of us ever drives across the border from state A to state B and says, oh, it's anarchy now because I'm in a RIFRA state. No one no one's ever said that sentence because it's not really anarchy. So I do think the court now has 30 years of experience of applying real strict scrutiny and realizing that it actually doesn't result in anarchy. It actually works quite well. It actually just forces the government to work around an occasional objector, which if their interest is important enough, they should be willing to do. Um, so I would expect that the court is at least much less scared of true strict scrutiny than it was 30 years ago. Another question about the Thomas dissent in Ramirez. Um, again, I don't think Justice Thomas applied the compelling interest test in Ramirez. I think he just said he didn't he wouldn't get to that test because he didn't uh, he didn't think it was a good claim. Do the Establishment Clause cases offer any guidance in the area of free exercise, particularly uh, in the area of COVID restrictions? Um, I, I'm try just trying to think back. I litigated a lot of those cases back in 2020, including the Agudith Israel and Diocese of Brooklyn case that went to the Supreme Court. Um, I think those cases, we may have had a little bit of Establishment Clause flavor, but they were all really free ex cases. Um, it was really more the government can't stop you from exercising your religion rather than saying that the government was establishing a religion. Um, so I don't think the Establishment Clause cases do that. Um, I do think somebody had, in one of the questions referred to the court really leaning into the, the fundamental nature of religion. I think that aspect of it you see across both the court's Establishment Clause and free exercise and statutory cases. The court really is recognizing that religion is deeply important. You know, if you look at the COVID cases, it really was pretty ridiculous when governments were saying you couldn't meet for 45 minutes to go to church, but you could sit, you could sit at, a, at a blackjack table um, for hours on end if you're six feet apart wearing a mask. Or I think it was New Mexico, it was probably other places too, that said the liquor stores are, um, are um, you know, urgently important. You got to keep the liquor stores open, but, but the AA meetings, not so much, right? The AA meetings in a church. I think if you look back on it, the the governments in those places really were just devaluing the religious meetings and the religious exercises and saying, well, we don't think that's important enough. Like Wall Street, that's important. You know, some protest, that's important. Blackjack, that's important. Or Hollywood, that's important. Just not religion. And I, and I don't think that's I think part of having constitutional protection for religious liberty means the government doesn't get to decide that for you. Um, Uh, do I think the court's likely to uh, distinguish summum related to existing memorial monuments versus new ones with overt religious messages? Um, I think the jury's still out. That like that kind of goes back to the American Legion case from a couple terms ago about the Bladensburg Cross in uh, Maryland. 
Um, I think the question is going to be, is the government trying to do the things that an establishment of religion did? Is it trying to make people worship God in a certain way, make them pay to do it? Is it trying to force them to pray a certain way, punishing them for praying a different way and so forth? Um, I don't think a World War I monument in the shape of a cross does that. I don't think a, you know, somebody, somebody put a, uh, a Gulf War monument up in the shape of a cross. I still don't think it establishes the thing. So I, I, I don't think it's likely that the court's going to say that makes a huge difference. I think the history they're going to say that matters is that, well, what was an establishment, right? What, what counts as an establishment? What did the people who passed that understand themselves to be banning? And I just don't think they understood themselves to be banning religious memorials. Um, if the government were trying to make everybody line up and worship a certain way at a particular memorial, then sure, that would be an establishment. But I don't, I don't think we're likely to see anything like that. Um, is there any historical evidence that the free exercise clause was understood to limit how the federal government could regulate federal employees? Um, I actually haven't looked into that myself, so I don't know. Um, there weren't a whole lot of federal employees right at the beginning. Um, I do know that the federal government was, you know, e even during the revolution, um, you know, giving religious exemptions, for example, for military service. So I think there's a history there. Uh, but but the precise question, I, I don't, I'm not aware if there are any free exercise cases about federal employment um, back then. So I don't know, other than to say, you know, the federal government is the federal government and the First Amendment regulates them and says they must respect the free exercise of religion. Seems to me a pretty straightforward reading of that is, you know, you have to let your employees freely exercise religion. I don't think um, I don't think it's pretty. I don't think it's it's much of a reading of that to say the government can say, well, unless you work for the government, and if you work for the government, you don't get the freely exercise religion. I think that would have been an odd reading back then, and it's an odd reading now. Oh, more questions. Okay. Um, what level of autonomy do religious schools get under these standards? To what extent can the government constitutionally regulate religiously affiliated schools? Um, those are broad questions. Let me just, just give a, a fairly broad answer. Um, religious schools have the right under the First Amendment, under you know, the autonomy cases like Hosanna Tabor and Our Lady and, and the cases those ones build on, um, and under the free exercise and establishment clauses, they have the right to be themselves and to be truly religious and to carry out their religious mission as they see fit. That's why the government doesn't get to pick the minister, doesn't get to pick the religion teacher, doesn't get to tell them who to hire and who to fire. Um, that doesn't mean that religious schools are completely beyond the reach of government regulators. Um, I don't think the court is likely to say, for example, that the state can't regulate the math curriculum, right? And say, look, if you're gonna have state accreditation, you've gotta make sure you're teaching multiplication in the third grade. Um, something like that, I think that type of regulation is is perfectly legitimate. It doesn't um, interfere with the school's religious exercise in any way. It doesn't interfere with the school's carrying out of its religious mission. So I think those types of requirements that apply to everybody, um, there's a good chance those can apply to religious schools too. But what can't be done is sort of the, we'll take away your religious character as the price of entering the public square. Oh, a couple more. Uh, question about will the court reconsider overturning employment division versus Smith? And I think the answer is yes. They've they've indicated quite clearly that several of them are quite open to that and that they just need to think through what replaces it and how it works. But the questioner points out that governments are getting better at trying to pat 
craft laws that are neutral and generally applicable. I do think the court over the past few years has been tightening that test and being clearer. They did that in Diocese of Brooklyn. They did it in Fulton, being clearer about um, the ways the government can run afoul of general applicability. But ultimately, the questioner is right that uh, a smart government can often find a way to craft a law a certain way to get some judge to say it's neutral and generally applicable. The truth is the free exercise clause doesn't say you have the right to free exercise of religion unless the government passes a generally applicable law. It just says you have the right to the free exercise of religion. So I think that's true. Um, how will these decisions affect the school prayer cases? Um, you know, they, I, I'm not sure that they will, frankly, I'm not sure that they will. I think something like Engel versus Vitali, um, where the government is writing a prayer and then the government agent is leading the children and saying the prayer. Um, I, I don't see anything in the Kennedy case that says the court's likely to, um, to, to depart from that. They, they emphasize that he was out on the field by himself. So I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure it does. Is the establishment clause really a Protestant denomination clause? Um, you know, I guess I don't think so. I think the establishment clause said there's a thing we don't want the government doing. It's having established religion. Um, and so I think the, the point of it was to say, we don't want the government having an established religion. We also want the government to let people freely exercise their religion. These cases that came up this year were really ones where the government had a um, an overactive sense of what is what is the right way to avoid an establishment. I think the court was trying to put that um, back in uh, in the right box. What about questions of human origin? Um, I, I'm going to guess that what that means is you know does that mean that. Uh, uh, the state schools can't teach evolution or the religious schools have to teach evolution. Um, sure, I could imagine a conflict between states and you know, some accreditors and some religious school. If there's a religious school that says we don't want to teach evolution and the state says you must, I could imagine a, a conflict over that. And, you know, you, you'd have to see does government have a good enough reason to uh, to override the religious school. Most religious schools I know of. Um, do teach evolution or some version of it anyway. So, uh, but yeah, I think that's possible ground for conflict going forward. So Mark, um, I don't know if we're going to get any more questions, but uh, one thing I'd like to ask you as in your role as president of the Beckett Fund, what do you anticipate coming up the next term? Uh, I mean, we, we don't know what cases are going to come up. Uh, there are a few we know about, but others will be added. I mean, given what happened this term, and the direction that uh, the court seems to be taking, uh, particularly in the last three cases, what do you and you have any thoughts about what we may be seeing as kind of the next case? Yeah, um, great question. And I know we don't have too much time, so I'll do a short version of the answer. One last term, and frankly, the last decade we've seen the Mark, court. I just want to say, I think we've got about fifteen minutes. So okay, great. Um, last term, and I'd say like the last you know, decade or 12 years, we've seen the court do a lot of religious liberty. Um, so it's not too big a surprise. There's not much on the court's docket coming up this year on religious liberty. Um, the one case they've so far taken is the 303 Creative. That's an ADF case about a, uh, someone who designs websites. Uh, a truly awful opinion by the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals saying it's totally fine to force her to write websites for same-sex weddings that she doesn't wish to support. 
Um, but it's interesting. The court took that case and kind of narrowed the question presented to focus it only on speech. Um, so they, they took the free X question out and made it just a speech question. I frankly think part of that is because the speech analysis is so clearly wrong. What the 10th Circuit did that um, that it's a pretty easy speech case. I mean, it's it, folks should go read the 10th Circuit opinions in 303 Creative. Um, it's about the worst First Amendment opinion you could imagine from a court of appeals. Um, so I think it's it's a straightforward case. The court is very, very likely to rule in favor of the wedding vendor, but they're not going to do it on expressly religious grounds. That said, I do think, and, and this is what we pointed out in our brief, that even within the protection of free speech, there is a place for saying that religious speech, um, just like political speech, gets the highest level of protection. So it's not out of the question. And I would expect that even in the opinions, you'll see some discussion of the importance of religion and religious speech, um, even though they decided on speech grounds. Beyond that, there's plenty of cases in the pipeline that you can imagine the court granting and considering later in the term. Um, there, we've got one called Smith v. Ward, which is a, a prison conditions case about a Muslim prisoner who's been denied the right to grow his beard, uh, kind of a follow-on to Holtz v. Hobbs. Um, there's the Groff case, which is a, a first liberty case that raises the TWA versus Hardison question. And there are some cases coming out of the ninth, a bunch, maybe not surprising, a bunch of cases coming out of the ninth circuit. Um, some of them on sacred lands for Native Americans um, that are likely to get uh, on the on the cert petition list um, this fall. Um, one of them was just argued earlier this week about governments uh, kicking out student groups from from high schools, a student Christian athletes group being kicked out because they they want leaders who uh, affirm their faith. Um, and then there's there's cases in a few different circuits about um, the ability of um, churches asserting church autonomy defenses to get resolution of those early in the case, as opposed to later. There's a Second Circuit case called Belia a 10th circuit case called Faith Bible. So there's a bunch going on that's kind of on deck coming to the court, but they haven't granted a lot yet. I, you still could see a lot that gets on the docket for next year, just be toward the back end, I think. Do you, do you think that uh, the death penalty cases and religious uh, liberty issues there have been, I mean, they'll continue to arise because people on death row will raise issues, I guess. But do you think that Ramirez is going to signal a, uh, a significant point in that, which these will be reduced now because of it'll be more cl clearer what can be done or not done by state. Yeah, I think that if I had to read the justices' minds, which is always a dangerous thing, but but if I had to read we're just, them, we're just guessing. Yeah, I think that's the reason they did Ramirez the way they did Ramirez, right? And you know, sometimes the court. Um, of course, likes to be very incrementalist and go bit by bit and, and sort of step by step. But but sometimes if they don't just kind of rip the Band-Aid off and clearly instruct the lower courts, this is the right answer and this is how you do it, then the results will be that things keep pinging back up to them, right? You saw this with like the contraceptive mandate um, kept popping back up. They had to do three or four cases on the contraceptive mandate. Um, so sometimes there's real value in the court just very clearly taking the case, making a merits decision so the lower courts know and the other governments know this is the rule, right? In some sense, part of the reason they're dealing with 303 creative is that they decided masterpiece, um, you know, uh, in, in a way that uh, the lower courts didn't quite get the message, right? The lower courts after masterpiece cake shop kept saying, oh, well, I can distinguish masterpiece. 
Um, they shouldn't have done that. They should have just gotten the message, but they didn't. So Ramirez, to me, is the court trying to speak very clearly to the lower courts and to the governments and say, here's the rule, follow it. And hopefully, I think they're thinking we will stop getting that on the emergency docket now. They can do that in a number. And I think Coach Kennedy was a version of that, too. I think there's a lot of wisdom in the court proceeding that way because um, I think it, it gives clarity that people need. And it also reduces some of the headaches the court needs to deal with. Goodness knows they have they have enough big things to deal with to not uh, not inflict some of these things on themselves by not not, not speaking clearly. Uh, I think there are a few other things that come through the chat. I don't know if. Um... Yeah, let me take a look at the questions. Um, uh, religious charter schools, um, I think that's something we will see litigated in the near future, right? There's some, some places that allow anyone who wants to get a charter to get a charter unless you're a religious group. Um, I think after Carson, um, there's, there's a much better case to be made that the governments can't be excluding the religious groups. Um, and I think you'll probably see litigation then over, okay, if it's a charter school, um, how, you know, what rights does it have once it's a charter school um, to exercise religion and, and so forth? So I think that is, that is an area that we will see some conflict in the coming years on. Um, What are the implications for a vigorous originalist perspective of the existence of established state churches when the Bill of Rights was ratified and for some time thereafter? Um, I may be misunderstanding the question, um, but like my own view is not much because at that time, the federal First Amendment just did not apply to the states. So I don't think like I don't I don't think of that as a problem for interpretation of the First Amendment. They were allowed to have established churches. Um, because the First Amendment didn't reach them until after the 14th. Um, and I apologize, Jeffrey, if I'm misunderstanding the question. Um, okay, this is this is heading toward the Justice Thomas area now that I read the next question. Is incorporation of the Bill of Rights against the states through the 14th Amendment defensible by a strict originalist? Um, I actually don't know. I haven't done that analysis myself. A, a strict originalist who I respect an awful lot, Clarence Thomas doesn't think so, but I don't, um, I actually don't know and haven't formed an opinion on um, how defensible that is as an originalist matter. In cases like Ramirez, what sort of compelling justifications does the government usually offer? What they try to say is, look, if we have the clergyman in the death chamber, he could interrupt the execution. He could tackle the guy who's doing the lethal injection. He could shout disparaging things at the security guards. Um, but but the problem is those were all pretty hypothetical. And the frankly unfortunate fact is we've put an awful lot of human beings to death in our country. Um, and the court looked at that history and said, you can't find me any example of the preacher attacking the executioner, right? So like we've actually got a long history and it seems like it can be done safely. So they assert public safety, which of course is a compelling interest. They, have, they assert safety for the government employees, which of course is a compelling interest, but they kind of fall short on connecting the dots between that and having a background checked minister um, in the chamber, which doesn't seem to have ever caused a problem. Um, my throat's running out of juice here. Let me do what I think for me will be the last questions. Um, some abortion protests have targeted churches. Others have targeted religious services. Um, can state governments limit picketing at worship services like they can at private residences? 
could the free exercise protection for worship provide similar protection? Um, so the short answer is, I think the law, the statute already does um, the federal free access to clinic entrances law. So this is the law that was passed to protect abortion clinics in the 90s. Um, it doesn't stop protest, but it does stop interference and obstruction um, and threats of violence and defacing and things like that. Right. So just like you can still protest and say prayers outside of an abortion clinic and offer somebody help, that's that's the McCullen case. Um, you can still do that on the sidewalk, but you can't block the door and tackle somebody or run into the waiting room and interfere. Um, well, that same law, the free access to clinic entrances law actually also contains a provision that applies to houses of worship. Um, so I'm not sure that you'd get something that says you can't protest outside of churches. Um, I think you probably could, but I don't think you have a right to go barge into a church and interfere with their operations um, to deface a church or to attack a pregnancy center. I think the pregnancy centers fall within the definition there. So I think there's already federal statutory law. What we need, frankly, is a federal government that vigorously enforces that law for all sides. Um, that I think would help. Um, and, and related to that question, somebody asked, are there major implications for religious liberty from overruling Roe? Um, there certainly could be, right? I mean, I do think we've had a lot of what I would call dumb proxy fights that are really fights over abortion that spilled into religious liberty, like trying to force nuns to, to buy contraception, right? That was, I, I honestly think that that whole fight erupted because people were looking for a place they could fight about abortion. Well, after Dobbs, you can just actually fight about abortion directly in your state legislature and you don't need a proxy battle. Um, so uh, it's not going to cool anything down in the next few years, right? As everyone can tell, uh, energies are running hot on all sides. But in the longer run, yeah, I think Roe is terrible for religious liberty. Um, and I think um, I think we've got a better chance of learning to live and let live a little bit uh, in a post Roe era, just not just not in the next five minutes. OK, Mark. Um, I think that's just about it. We might have a minute left. Um, anything you want to say to wrap up? No, I'm uh, I'm good. And my throat's uh, my throat's running out. Okay. Of so uh, sorry if I talked too much or too fast, but uh, I appreciated all the questions and sorry if I missed one. Well, with that, on behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our experts for the benefit of the valuable time and expertise today. I want to thank our audience for joining and participating. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. As always, keep an eye on our website and our emails for announcements about upcoming virtual events. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.